This episode is brought to you by Cane Toads. Cane Toads, coming to a neighborhood near you. No. <laughs> <laughs> This is Wild Green Streams. I'm Rhett. I'm Curtis. I'm Roy. And with us today is Dr. David Why Sharks Matter Schiffman come to talk about his new book called Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So selfishly at the beginning, I want to talk about a particular footnote that is in the book. (laughs) I bet. So Wild Green Memes is actually mentioned and there's a little story in the footnote. Do you want to tell people about that story and, you know, what happened? Yeah. So this is this book is not a textbook, but it is produced by a serious academic publisher. So there were a few things I had to go back and forth with them uh, to make sure that they agreed that it was a good fit for the target audience. And I was thrilled that they were willing to let me talk about the story of at least 74 practicing shark researchers, the origin of the meme and the whole thing of, of sharks are smooth as hell in all directions and all that good stuff. And that is that and wild green memes are mentioned in the book. So what is the sharks are smooth as hell in all directions meme? Yeah. So there was a great webcomic. I believe the guy's name was Branson Reese published this very funny webcomic where he said it was called the first person to ever encounter a shark. And it's someone in shallow water getting bitten. And it says smooth lions are attacking me. And that, of course, led to the well, actually, people of Twitter uh, saying, you know, that shark skin is not really smooth. Uh, It's only smooth in one direction because of the dermal denticles and things like that. And Reese doubled down on this and got increasingly dramatic and hilarious about it. And one of the things he did was he made a fake book cover of him reading and it said sharks are smooth as hell in all directions on the fake book cover. So this has become a whenever uh, you're watching a shark meme on Wild Green Memes and you're one of these incredible number of new people that are joining all the time and don't know the history of the different memes. Whenever there's a shark meme, someone will say smooth on it. And if you don't know what they're referencing, it's that. My favorite detail about the book he was holding is that it was entitled Sharks as Smooth as Hell by Charles Darwin. But if you look at the spine, you can see that it's a Stephen King novel. Amazing. I don't know which, which one. But, like You didn't even attempt to like, it's literally just like a, an index card with Sharpie scotch tape to it, a Stephen King paperback. <laughs> this meme was obviously a big hit in Wild Green Memes, but then to layer on top of that, there was a second meme, which within our small little bubble has actually surpassed the original one, I think. And that was based on a post that you made, actually, and something you said in the post. Do you remember the details of that? I know that you said the phrase, at least 74 currently practicing shark researchers. Just when we were going back and forth on this sharks are smooth as hell in all directions thing, I noted that there were a lot of people in my professional community who are members of the group. Hi, everyone. And... I counted just out of curiosity, and there were at the time 74 of us, including me, who I was Facebook friends with, and probably more. So I wrote that you are there are at least 74 practicing shark researchers in this group, and you're cracking us up. But just so everyone knows, don't try to pet a shark because they're actually not smooth and you will hurt yourself. And that at least 74 practicing shark researchers has taken off and has become a finalist, I think, on the both both years charity battles. And I have stickers from it and it raised thousands of dollars for charity. Some stupid, sarcastic thing I said. So I'll take it. So for people who are new to the group, we have a group nonprofit as one of our projects. And that nonprofit, we do a fundraiser every year where people pick gangs or teams based on their favorite organisms or silly memes or whatever, you know, anything wildlife oriented. There's always a geology one as well that gets thrown in the mix. And one of the highest scoring gangs of all time has been at least 74 currently practicing shark researchers, which is a name so long. It's the only sticker that doesn't get the whole thing written out on it. And somebody made a music video in the group. Was that I can't remember who did that. That was actually my brother Brian and his band RX Fire made a music video that was featuring David Schiffman on it. It is a uh, as the kids these days say it slaps. We should include a sound bite of that. I'll put one in right now. Shark Research. Wow. 
Dolphins like an olive And sharks like a grave Smooth in all directions And every kind of way Says the shark oil salesman Selling that shark wine They'll take us off a fool so Who can hold the line I love that song. I, I've been trying to figure out how to make it my ringtone. We need we need to get that on Spotify. It is on Spotify. Oh, it is. Never mind. Yeah, right. Go to RX Fire. Oh my God. That means I can play it on my Alexa. I just kind of want a playlist that's just that one song at, at least 74 times. We can do it. To get a little more into the book itself, it just started out with basically a chapter about what are sharks. Mm-hmm. And do you want to go into what sharks are? And also, there were a lot of pretty mind-blowing trivia facts. One that really stands out to me is that sharks as a group are older than the rings of Saturn. Yeah, isn't that amazing? There have been sharks swimming in the ocean since before there were trees on land. Take that, botanical bun. (laughs) (laughs) And there have been sharks swimming in the ocean since long before there were rings, the rings around Saturn, long before there were dinosaurs on land. It's a really ancient group of fishes, which and they've survived all these mass extinction events, which makes their current conservation challenges all the more tragic. There's so many fun facts about sharks that I just sort of sprinkled in throughout the basic chapter to try to convince people to keep reading the background stuff. That's often not everyone's favorite part. One that I just was interviewed about on Science Friday last week that the production staff, it said, just blew up their production staff's team slack with everyone geeking out about this was Greenland sharks, which can be over 400 years old. They're the longest lived vertebrate animal. Eat polar bears. Insane. Isn't that ridiculous? Do they actively hunt them or do they scavenge? We don't know. They have found polar bear skulls in the stomachs of Greenland sharks. It might be scavenging on polar bears that drown. 
it might be, I, in my mind's eye, I can picture a polar bear swimming from ice low, getting slurped up from below. So it has not been observed one way or the other, but they've found polar bear parts inside the stomachs of Greenland sharks and reindeer. Reindeer is interesting. So do Greenland sharks go into fresh water? They can go into the mouths of rivers, certainly. And there was that hilarious uh, Canadian news story a little while ago that there was a Greenland shark choking on a moose and someone went to try and rescue it in the water. If It would have to involve Tim Hortons for it to be a more Canadian news story. But so the, they can go into the mouths of rivers, at least. There are some sharks that are primarily freshwater, right? There are. There's a whole genus, genus Glyphus, which is primarily freshwater. And they're the river sharks, cleverly named. They live most, if not all of their lives in rivers. They're found in Indonesia and North Australia. Generally speaking, if you're a wild animal, you want to be as far away from humans as possible. And unfortunately, rivers are closer to humans than the open ocean. So this species, these species are all endangered or critically endangered. How would these different sharks that are adapted primarily for freshwater, how would they be different than other sharks that are primarily marine in saltwater habitats? Yeah, they have different osmoregulatory systems and the physiology gets gets very technical and very beyond my ability to convey very quickly. But the short answer is they have different osmoregulatory systems um, and they either excrete a lot of extra water with their waste so that their cells don't burst or just the chemistry of their cells is different. So osmoregulatory means they keep a different balance of water within themselves with the environment? Yes. Something that you kind of get out of the way right at the beginning of the book is you talk about shark bites and how unusual they are and kind of a framework for thinking about them. And you go into like a few different things that are more likely to happen to you than a shark bite. Yeah. Uh, all of these relative risk of dying statistics were a lot more entertaining to me prior to the pandemic, mm. but uh, they usually get a chuckle at my public talks. There are some things that kill more people in a typical year than sharks include flower pots falling on your head from above while you walk down the street. That's one that I was always very confused about, but watching some of my neighbors during lockdown try to set up a garden on their balconies, I understand that now and I walk a little farther or a little closer to the street side of the curb. Uh, vending machines, those things are death traps. Those kill dozens of people every year. I think the most ridiculous one of these as a social media guy is that more people in a typical year for each of the last several years have died not paying attention while taking a selfie of beautiful scenery and falling off a cliff. So sharks are every once in a while someone is hurt by a shark. It's very, very rare. It's not something you need to worry about. I can back up anecdotally that vending machines are more dangerous because I actually almost joined the group of people who were killed by vending machines a few years ago. Yeah, they're scary. When I was actually, I guess it was 10 years ago now, I was just getting out of high school and I was waiting in line at an outdoor gas station buying area and they had vending machines on either side of me. And I turned and my friend was pale and he had jumped back and I turned back around and the vending machine was up on one edge, leaned almost all the way over. And then at the last minute, it bounced back to where it was supposed to be. So I've swam with sharks a few times, but I've only ever been threatened by vending machines. Wow. Yeah. And there is, there's also that statistic that like cows kill a lot more people than sharks do, which is only something that's funny and inexplicable if you've never been on a farm because cows are large and they're not especially uh, calm animals. My mom was almost wow. killed by a bull when she was a teenager at my great uncle's dairy farm. So there's you no know, whenever I share that, like everyone giggles I'm like, oh, so you guys were all born in a city. I see <laughs> you could not defeat a cow in battle, whether it has a sword or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> people don't never recognize how scary those big herbivore animals are until they see them yeah and you realize oh that's that's a big that's a big animal no 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 like seeing a moose or something oh yeah I will say, as someone who lives in New York City, I really identified with that flower pot statistic. That and someone who lives in New York City and who has also seen too many Final Destination movies, flower pots, uh, fire escape ladders. I always like run far away from those. Like walk way far away from those. Like not getting me today. Not happening today. Don't more New Yorkers bite people a year than sharks? Yes. A lot more. More humans are bitten by other humans in the New York City subway system in a year than are bitten by sharks in the whole world. And like that's something that everyone's like, that can't be right. And any New Yorker you talk to, they're like, yeah. My brush with death was a, uh, a rip card in the Caribbean. That's terrifying. Like that kills a lot of people. And it doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are. If you get caught in a rip current, you, you can't fight it. You have to get either ride it out and then swim back in or swim out of it rather than fighting it. 
And that those those terrify me. Going to the beach can be very dangerous, just not because of sharks. Right. And yet you uh, talk about there's a bias issue in what gets covered basically because of, of what's sensational or it bleeds, it leads. So you mentioned in the book, there's a likelihood that if there's an article about sharks, it's about a bite rather than or an encounter of some kind rather than about anything that's actually representative of a typical shark's presence or its interaction with the world. Yeah. So a, a previous analysis, and I did a follow up to this that I can talk about in a bit. But a previous analysis of just how sharks are covered in the English speaking news around the world found that only 9% of the stories mentioned that sharks are ecologically important and face conservation challenges. Most of the stories were about sharks biting people. And we did a follow up analysis of this that was looking specifically at how shark conservation specifically is covered in the English speaking news. And I assembled a team of undergraduate and graduate students. And they read every news article that has been written about shark conservation in the English speaking world over the last 10 years, about 2000 news articles, and just wrote down what did they say, what threats were mentioned, what solutions were mentioned, what factoids were mentioned, who was quoted and things like that. And that was also fairly troubling. Even the stories that were supposed to be pro-conservation had just dumpster fires of misinformation. You talk a lot about misinformation in the book and really bring things to light. And one area that gets a more attention than it deserves, based on what I've read in your book, is uh, shark finning. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about often by well-intentioned people who care about wildlife conservation and care about the state of our oceans and, and sharks and other animals. So can can you touch a bit upon the, uh, the truth and the facts of sure. shark finning and the way it's sort of been blown out of proportion in terms of what's an actual threat to a shark? Yeah. So if you talk to anyone who is sort of like casually aware of ocean conservation and it's not their job, they don't have a degree in it, but they're a scuba diver who loves the ocean or they go to the beach and they try to pick up after themselves and just, or they watched one documentary a few years ago or things like that. A threat that they've often heard about is shark finning. But this does not mean what a lot of people think it means. And it's misused by a lot of high profile people who should know better. And as a result, there's a lot of misunderstanding. I'll give you one example of this, of how this the misuse of this just drives me insane. Um, that a couple weeks ago, there was a petition, one of these change.org, anyone can make your own petition petitions to ban shark finning in the state of Florida. And it got 60,000 people to sign the petition. Shark finning was banned in Florida in 1993. This is a petition that cannot possibly accomplish its goal because its goal was accomplished before the person who made the petition was born. And maybe if you don't know that, you shouldn't be leading the charge on a policy issue. And this is not harmless. This this leads to a lot of people misunderstanding what the threats are, not supporting the evidence-based data-driven expert-backed solutions, and screaming at experts on social media. You guys have seen some of the nonsense that I deal with almost every day on social media stuff. Yeah, that's definitely there's a whole skill set built around managing your own reaction to things that we've had to build into ourselves a little bit doing uh, similar work around this communication at, at that scale online. My question for you with the shark finning is, is it that it was never the same scale and category of problem as it was presented and or is it that it was a problem that was an issue and actually was solved and should be presented as a success story and that shark finning is not as big an issue for at least the relevant species of sharks as it once was. Yeah, it's sort of a mix of those, depending on when the person talking about is referencing. Shark finning was a big issue in the 1990s, and it was largely solved. Uh, we banned it in the U.S. here. Uh, much of the rest of the world has since banned it. And it just does it, it, so it should be presented as a success story in many ways. But also now people claim that basically any time a shark is killed for any reason using any method, they say that that's shark finning. And it's not We're, like words mean things. If you were to do this for whatever reason, this orangutan with the sword meme is stuck in my head all the time. And like, if you were to ban fight dueling someone with a mace, then that orangutan would not be affected by that law because it's not using a mace, it's doing something else. Like, so uh, there are all these petitions that go viral and all these images that go viral with sharks that have unequivocally not been finned, but are dead. And it says, stop shark finning. We need to stop the scourge of shark finning. And like, that's not what this is. So stopping shark finning would not affect this. 
You know, field that I've seen something similar in another conservation communication area is there's a lot of save the trees specific communication where people say save the trees as like a blanket statement or like use less paper because it uses less trees when that was always not a nuanced enough take on it because most paper doesn't come from, you know, the rainforest. It comes from a farm. But even now, I mean, there there are much larger problems than saving that individual pine tree on that farm. And it seems like we're still stuck on the successful campaigns of like the 80s and 90s are, are where the general understanding of what the problems are is and we're having to almost overcome previous generations of communications own success yeah an article that i share with my ocean conservation students at georgetown that always generates some interesting discussion was written a couple years ago in vox uh, and it's called i'm an environmentalist and i don't care if you recycle and the point of the article is that we don't need you know hundreds of thousands of hippies using slightly better products or you're going, we don't need hundreds of thousands of hippies to do uh, or to to be environmentally perfect. We need everyone to do slightly better. And for everyone to do slightly better, we need top down change in manufacturing regulations and waste distribution regulations. And make sure to recycle is it puts the salute, the onus on the individual. And related to this, the idea of the carbon footprint that we all use was literally invented by BP and Exxon so that you're wondering about why you're using so much carbon right. and not why they are. I think that some there's a nuance in this dichotomy that I've noticed and haven't seen a lot of people articulate that I think it is important, though, which is that like those companies are run by someone or like there are yeah. people who are in positions of power. But from their point of view, they're just a person like because their life led them up to that moment. Right. So I, I always I have this unresolved debate in my head about what the right approach is to saying it's not about individuals, it's about top down, because a lot of the time I feel like top down means anyone but me, even if you are someone who happens to have power over that. And like, especially because there's always a bigger fish, you know, like there's literally one or two people on earth that don't have someone who's a bigger fish than them that they can point to and say, it's top down, it's anyone but me. So I'm wondering if you've thought of a way of phrasing it So that it's not there's a difference between telling people you can save the earth by turning off the lights when you leave the room, which Mm -hmm. is obviously false. And, you know, it belies like the larger issue of, you know, we need the power to be generated better and distributed differently and, and, and all of these different nuances, but still some form of you have some kind of power in some kind of environment, Like, like whether it's even just your community or your neighborhood or you could be you work for someone who's like a manufacturer and anything like that. I don't know exactly how to concisely articulate that, like that, that there is a way for individuals to improve things. But it's through looking at what you're already connected to and trying to clean that up. Yeah, the short answer is we need both. Yeah. And, and uh, systemic societal wide change is not going to happen without a lot of individuals demanding it and electing elected officials who who push for it. Uh, but you no, know, I recycle. I know that that alone isn't going to change the world. I turn off the light when I leave the room. I know that that alone isn't going to change the world, but it, it matters to me, especially when right. we're talking about something like climate change, which is much more incremental than it's often presented. Um, I've, you see a lot of doomism now on social media that, oh, the Build Back Better Act didn't pass exactly the way that it was promised. Therefore, we're all going to die screaming on fire in 20 years. And there's no point doing anything. No, every ton of carbon mm-hmm. that we don't put in the atmosphere helps. So yeah, what people do individually absolutely matters. Right. But just so much much of this is, you know, don't use a plastic straw and that alone will save the ocean. Like You should probably use less single use plastic if you can. But, you know, that the way that it's presented is not accurate and not helpful. I think plastic straws are an interesting illustration of this because what I saw and this might not be how it was overall, but what I saw, at least in my town, was that people stopped using plastic straws for a while personally, but they also organized around it and were trying to pass like county ordinances about plastic straws. And then eventually that got it seemed to me that that got overwhelmed by the sentiment that straws are not enough which was never the premise that they were acting under. You see what I'm saying? Like there's this interesting effect on social media where like it's almost like nothing is ever enough to be a start. Uh, So plastic straws also have another tricky issue, which is that some people genuinely do medically need them. Right. I, I have a friend with MS and without a plastic straw, she can't 
consume liquid. Right. And the, and people say, well, humans survived with for millions of years without plastic. Like a lot of well, us did. Not everyone. Do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's a tricky issue in a lot of ways. It was initially supposed to be sort of a gateway issue that right. a straw is something that a lot of us use whenever we go out to lunch. Do you really need to think about your relationship with plastic? And it got turned into straws alone are evil and we need to ban all the straws and that'll save the ocean. <laughs> and then that led to the pushback of that's not enough. Therefore, don't do anything. And it's just it's a very predictable and very frustrating cycle that happens all the time. Along these lines, mm-hmm. Rosemary Mosco, the author of uh, Bird and Moon Comics great. and uh, A Guide to Pigeon Watching, who we've had on the podcast, did a very recent comic about climate change. And it has these these it's not really so much a humorous comic, just sort of a sentence and facts. And it has uh, these two arguments of it's too late to take action and everything will be fine. And the answer neither is true. And then after listing some examples, kind of ends with uh it's not too late. It's not fine, but it's exactly the time to demand a better world. Yeah, there's a, a very frustrating thing on social media where everyone, uh, people who are, are fishing for clout rather than actually trying to help. And they don't actually care if what they do does anything to help as long as they get donations and they get Instagram likes or whatever. And one example of this that is also driving me crazy is someone who I rant about a lot in Hawaii they were involved in getting this new bill passed that you may have seen on ocean social media mm-hmm. that Hawaii becomes the first U.S. state to ban all fishing for sharks. Hooray, retweet this to thank Hawaii or whatever. It only banned it in state waters, which is notably not where 98.7% of shark fishing in and around Hawaii takes place. So it doesn't actually do what the supporters claim, and they know that, and they assume that you don't know that and will just give them a like on Instagram. And it drives me crazy. And then what's worse is then people think that the problem is fixed and then therefore not available to help with real things. It also doesn't fix the issue of shark bycatch for folks that are fishing other things like tuna or like other fish. It doesn't solve that problem either. Yes, absolutely. So on that note, what are the actual threats that sharks face? And, you know, is it different across them or are there a few overarching threats that you could really summarize with? I can summarize it in one. That overfishing is the number one threat by far. About a third of all known species of sharks and their relatives are assessed as threatened with extinction by the IUCN Red List. And in 100% of those threatened species, overfishing was listed among their serious threats. I think the number two was habitat loss with about 20% of species mentioning it. So there's basically not a number two. Uh, There are certainly some species that are threatened by other things, but everything is threatened by overfishing. And... That notice I did not say just shark finning. Overfishing includes, but is not limited to, shark finning. It also includes the bycatch that Leroy was just mentioning. But that also does not mean that there's no such thing as sustainable fishing. It's just there's no doubt that there's a lot of unsustainable, harmful fishing practices. But sustainable fishing absolutely exists. And the people who are claiming that it doesn't exist are lying to you to try to advance their own agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you have a, a chapter that's largely devoted to target based versus limit based policy. And that struck me as similar mm-hmm. to an old debate in conservation that goes all the way back to, to John Muir and like and Pinchot. Yeah, Pinchot yeah. with the conservation versus preservation. Yes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So if the problem is overfishing, we're killing too many sharks um, intentionally and accidentally through fi- industrial fishing practices. There are two basic families of solutions. One is the target-based, and that's saying we're killing too many sharks. Let's reduce the number of sharks we're killing based on scientific data while still allowing some fishing to happen. And the other is limit-based, and that's saying we're killing too many sharks. We need to stop all killing of sharks. And that is more emotion-driven rather than scientific data-driven. It is notably supported by way fewer experts, both in the environmental community and in the scientific community, based on surveys I've done of the shark science community and shark environment community. But it's very, what started basically a whole wave of my research over the last few years is weird interactions I had on Twitter. That inspired uh, tens of thousands of dollars of grants and years of my life, is why are all these people who are so passionate and care Why are they so wildly wrong about the basic facts surrounding this issue? Mm -hmm. If the conversations that I have with professional scientists and professional environmentalists are just wildly different in scope and in tone and in content than the conversations I have with these people who are like shark lover 420 on Twitter or whatever. Have you heard the ivory soap story? No. 
This is one of my favorite. Um, I think it's from read it in the book um, Overcoming Ecophobia. And it was a story of a, a child who started like a poster campaign to ban ivory soap because the child thought it was made from killing elephants because oh was familiar God. with it was a very young child the parent informed them when they found out what the child was doing but it was the same sort of thing where it's like they understood <laughs> ivory is something that comes from an elephant and ivory soap is something you can buy and did not have the information to figure out that these are completely disconnected but it, it's like the same sort of misinformed good intention yeah. sort of thing which is such an underlying problem in all these discussions that's amazing oh wow that's wild they're related to this there was some similar nonsense with sharks uh, right around the start of the pandemic it was pointed out correctly that shark liver oil is used in the making of some pharmaceutical products including some vaccines i think it's in the astrazeneca vaccine one of the ones that's not commonly available here in the u.s for covid and someone was claiming this is going to kill millions of sharks I mean, it's not like no one the the value of shark liver oil is not enough that it's worth it to go fishing for sharks for that. That's a case of the shark is already dead, often caught as part of a well-managed, sustainable fishery. Let's use the liver oil, too. And it just that stuff just drives me crazy. People just this is the Dunning-Kruger in action. What Zach Wienersmith calls Mount Stupid, that first peak of uh, the Dunning-Kruger curve, where when you first know a little bit, you think you know a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And he calls that peak Mount Stupid. And there's so much <laughs> good Mount Stupid examples in ocean conservation. Have you found any success in bridging that gap and overcoming Mount Stupid on this kind of topic? Like, have you seen a thing that you can say that will take at least a portion of the people who are in camp? I care about sharks, but I don't understand the problem and get them to come into I care about sharks and I understand what actually needs to be done with regards to their conservation. Every once in a while you get one of those wins and it feels great. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to start with I, you have to start with deconstructing what someone is saying. And you have to do that in a way that's not condescending and not elitist. And it's really hard as, as scientists, you know, we know that we know what the right answer is and that doesn't, and the, but the other person isn't dumb or bad. They're just wrong. So it's important to make sure that you're talking to someone and listening to them. And it's a long and involved process. And every once in a while you do see that. But I'll, I'll tell you that I complain a lot about these viral misinformation campaigns on social media. And someone always says, well, maybe a person who originally learns about shark conservation through a banned shark finning in Florida petition uh, will eventually realize that that's not true and go become activated for something useful. And I got to tell you, people have been selling me that for 16 years and I've been looking and I've never once found evidence of a single person doing that. Uh, so maybe we could, instead of sharing wrong information that gets people all fired up in ways that are not going to actually help anything or anyone, maybe instead we could tell the truth. Wouldn't it be great if even the gateway was something useful rather than some kind of misinformation? Yeah. What I really liked, and as somebody who's chronically online, as the kids say, I really sort of resonated with me just because I'd never thought of it, is how oftentimes when you engage in with someone who's misinformed, you won't necessarily change that person's opinion. And pro most likely we won't in with how argumentative social media can can get. But you are informing the people reading that conversation who aren't interacting with it. Like for all the people who might pile on to you with thinking a scientist is wrong, there could be dozens more reading this and being like, huh, I didn't know that this is what shark finning means or that yeah. climate change isn't as big of a threat to shark as it is to uh, to corals or whatever. And I, I'd, I'd never thought of that about the uh, the audience who isn't responding being yeah think think about your own social media behavior even as someone who's very online you read more things than you respond to and you think about them yes yes they say they say you scroll past something if you agree with it and you comment on, on it if you disagree yeah so the analogy that I use when I, I do professional development training for scientists and public science engagement and an analogy that I use is we all have the cliche of the crazy conservative uncle at Thanksgiving. You're not if you argue with your crazy conservative uncle at Thanksgiving, you're not going to change your crazy conservative uncle's mind. But maybe you'll inform your cousins about something, a perspective that they hadn't otherwise heard. 
And who knows what effects that'll have. On a completely different note, what's your favorite <laughs> weird thing that's been found in a shark's stomach? Oh, man, I, I think I got to go with penguins. Penguins. Yeah. In South Africa, tiger sharks have been found with penguins in their stomach. Also porcupines, the land animal, as well as it. That's Isn't wild. That nuts? <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did that? Which, what shark? A, a porcupine made a bad choice is what happened there. What shark was it? And like how? Tiger shark. It's always a tiger shark with stories like that. So Jaws is a documentary is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about that. With, with tiger sharks eating all sorts of weird crap. Yeah, yeah so I, I have a question for that. Why tiger sharks? Why is it tiger sharks that are like the garbage trucks of the sea? Yeah, it's... I don't know. They're just extremely generalist predators. They, they live all over the world. They migrate thousands of miles. They're adapted to eat and hunt all kinds of stuff. And these are animals that are, are, you know, not used to an environment where a lot of crab in the ocean isn't food. They've been there again since before there were rings around Saturn. And for 99% of that time, everything they encountered is food. And now we're, we come around and mess everything up. In normal people numbers and like not using a, a banana or for scale or temporal scale or mm-hmm. half a giraffe, how long have sharks been on Earth, according to the fought record? 450 or so a million years. Yeah, the earliest animal that's recognizable as a shark uh, record go back about 450, 460 million years. Uh, so a really ancient group of vertebrates. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And there's a new book out about sort of the evolution of sharks called A Mighty Bitey History. Uh, it's sort of designed for kids, but it's, it's full of, of fascinating, fun facts. Uh, and it's thoroughly researched. One of the things I do through my consultancy is fact check, and I fact check that book. And it's, it's really uh, very interesting. A unit that you used in the book that I really appreciated was that the ocean is bigger than 55,000 Delawares. Yeah. So this idea that that was cracking me up, this whole like half a giraffe banana for scale stuff, because if you hear about ocean stories, it's often presented in American news in the size of Delawares. Like this marine protected area is three times the size of Delaware. Like I've been to Delaware probably more than most people who are not from there. And I don't have a sense of how big that is. <laughs> so they're talking about the, the marine protected areas and the goals of protecting more and more of the ocean. Uh, I talked about this in concepts of Delawares. And you no, know, this marine protected area is 100 times the size of Delaware. Do you think that sounds like a lot? Well, the ocean is 55,000 times the size of Delaware. So it's not a lot. The thing I like most about that is that it sounds kind of like we're shitting on Delaware, <laughs> but I have no idea how big that no state idea. is. I've seen I've heard that comparison before a lot of times too. <laughs> yeah. Also, Delaware is the second smallest state, I believe. It's not even the smallest state. Yeah. Yeah. Use Rhode Island or you know, use that, yeah, not Delaware. No, it's so random why they why they do that. How many Delawares deep is the ocean? That's that's the next unit I need to know. Oh man, <laughs> that's gonna bother me all day. Is that a vertical or a horizontal Delaware? Ah, uh, that's a good question. How, how do, do do national borders extend all or state borders extend all the way to the core? Like where, what's the cutoff? <laughs> I think there is a cutoff in terms of mineral rights, at least for personal property. Uh, but and it varies by state and country. But I don't know what it is. That's the sort of thing that I used to know back when I did pub trivia all the time. What's the conversion rate of football fields to Delaware's? Oh, man, that's too much math for today. But a a cool statistic that with tiger shark migration that my PhD advisor used on one of his tracking studies is there's something called a core habitat area uh, is something you can calculate from satellite tracking data. And the core habitat area of tiger sharks in the Atlantic is a billion football fields. What? That's insane. Yeah, it's, it's too big. They go wherever they want. It's a big fish. It swims wherever it wants. See, that's once you hit 10,000, my mind is just like, I don't know what that means. You, you can tell me sharks lived have been around for 400,000 years or 400 million years. And my mind is sort of like big number. Yes. And people take advantage of that. People will manipulate you with that to, to share scary sounding statistics. If I were to tell you like that one that you see a lot is 100 million sharks a year are killed. And that's part of an estimate. And it's approximately correct. But it sounds like a big, scary number, but it doesn't actually mean anything without any context. Speaking of the relevance of these measurement issues and range issues, how does that play into marine protected areas and their designations and how effective they are? So marine protected areas are when they're done correctly uh, and they are often not done correctly. When they're done correctly, they can be a big part 
of the solution to these overfishing crises. And a marine protected area is ideally a place where fishing is restricted or banned. And we need places like that to allow fish populations to recover. For many people listening to this, this is old news. You can think of them as national parks underwater. But there are a lot of marine protected areas that are not made correctly, are not designed or implemented properly. Some of them, they have no enforcement at all, which means that they're just lines on a map that don't actually change anything. And for some of them, they're trying to protect a species by protecting an area where that species does not and has not ever lived. This is what happens when politicians get involved in trying to do something that sounds good without involving scientists. And sometimes environmentalists looking for a quick win that they can sell to their donors uh, will do something like that. And there's a bunch of these crazy stories about marine protected area fail, failed designations, but they also don't mean necessarily what people think they mean. There was that story last year or two years ago that in the United Kingdom, something like 90% of their marine protected areas allow bottom trawling, which is the most environmentally destructive form of fishing. Bottom trawling can be done sustainably as anything can, but it destroys sensitive habitat and there are places we should not bottom trawl. And it, what, it begs the question of what the heck these fishing area or these protected areas are being protected from if they allow bottom trawling. And the answer is they're just feel good measures that don't really do anything for a politician to be able to say, I helped the environment. Don't look too closely. So I think that for me anyway, my personal solution to trying to see if something is legitimate or not is that I have a collection of like news sources and organizations and people that I found are generally reliable. And then I, tr I look at what they're saying and try to build from there. What for someone who doesn't have that base built up for sharks already, what are the credible sources to look at to say, OK, this person or this organization says that this is a, a good protected area? or that this is an actual issue that sharks are facing? Like, who are the credible sources in this situation? So there are some great environmental nonprofit groups that are science-based and work with experts and use evidence-based, data-driven uh, policy solutions. And I go into this in some depth in the book of how you can tell a, a, a snake oil salesman from someone who knows what they're talking about, how you can tell someone who's trying to help the ocean versus, try, versus someone who's trying to get famous or get Instagram liked. And part of it is just looking at their website and what sources do they cite? Who do they say they work with? What successes do they say they've had? Do they look at their staff? Do they have experts on staff or do they work with external experts? And a lot of one thing that I found a really, really striking result in my global survey of people working in the ocean conservation community on shark issues is that something like nine or 10 percent of people who work on this have never read a scientific paper in their life, have never spoken to a scientist in their life. And those people are the most confident about what the current state of the science is. And they're wrong. So and the, one of the quotes from one of these people is, I've never seen any evidence that this policy can work. And I just wanted to say, you know, you, sometimes normal, healthy, well-adjusted thing is screaming at your anonymous survey data. But <laughs> I wanted to scream at this person and say, like, you're not talking to experts and you're not reading where they put their evidence. Where are you hoping to find this evidence? Right. You just published a study looking at ways to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion in different academic societies and scientific, uh, professional scientific societies. Your paper focused on the society you're part of, the American Elasmobranch Society. But building off of that, what would be the best way to increase inclusion of more like underrepresented folks into these spaces where they've been excluded for a very long time? So there are some great organizations that are working to correct these errors, one of which is minorities and shark sciences, uh, which they work to provide opportunities for women of color, early career interested in this field. Another is a, a group of my, founded by my graduate school classmates called Field School. Um, that they do training courses for how to how to know how to do field research in marine biology, and they always offer scholarships. And I did a fundraiser associated with the launch of the book that allowed my readers to donate to these organizations and support making it easier for people uh, from underrepresented backgrounds to get started in the field, which can be very expensive. So providing scholarships for them. And in exchange, they get a signed copy of the book and get to join me for a day of shark research or get entered for a drawing to be a practicing shark researcher for a day. And we just closed that and we raised over $12,000 for these groups. Oh, awesome. I'm just thrilled with how, how well that went. And that'll be later in June. 20 people over two days are going to get to see for themselves that sharks are not smooth as hell in all directions. While doing so, they're supporting these great causes and making the next generation a little more accessible. But part of the answer, a big problem in, in shark world 
is not only unpaid internships, but pay to participate internships, uh, which is something that I know wildlife ecology as a whole has a huge problem with unpaid internships. The most prestigious shark world internship will cost you about $2,000 a month to volunteer. And that's crazy. And there are, as you might expect, patterns in who can afford to do that and who cannot. And it's a big issue. So one of the amazing things that Minorities and Shark Sciences does is they pay for one of their members to do that. I I think it wouldn't have been terrible for that lab to to donate a spot to someone, but Minorities and Shark Sciences raised the money and has someone who can do that, I think, for a three-month term once a year. So there are huge issues with diversity, equity, inclusion, and representation in marine biology, but they're worse in shark science, measurably so. And that's what one of the things that the new paper was about. We looked over our demographic records from the membership files over the years. Uh, one thing that was particularly horrifying to me from this paper uh, was in the year 2019, our society had over 400 members. One was black. It's just, and that person was the founder of Minorities in Shark Sciences, and she's a co-author on the paper, and she didn't realize she was the only black member of the society until she read that, that data file. And she said, you know, sometimes it feels like you're the only one, but to know you actually are is bananas. You know, and this was in 2019. This wasn't in 1955. We, are, we currently, in my professional society, we have our second ever woman president right now, just took over in January. This is a, a field that has been around, this is a professional society that's been around my entire lifetime. And we're getting better at representation of women, but representation of, of non-whites, of people of color is staggeringly bad. It's crazy to me to hear that the professional society is only on its second ever female president, given that, as you mentioned in your book, over half of all shark researchers are women. Yes. And it's if you were to watch Shark Week, you would never know that. Shark Week is uh, full of nonsense, but it is the highest profile stage in ocean science and conservation. Millions of people watch. It can be a professional launch pad for lots of early career scientists and often is. And more than half of their shows take place in Mexico or South Africa or the Bahamas. Uh, Before like 2020, I can't remember ever seeing a black scientist featured or uh, more than two Mexican scientists featured on the show. And almost everyone is a white guy. And many of them are not scientists. They're just brought on because they're television personalities, but they claim to be shark experts because they do this over and over again. We just did an analysis. Uh, Dr. Lisa Whitenack was the lead and I was a senior author where we had some undergraduates watch every shark week ever and record what shark species are featured, what research methods are used, where does it take place, uh, who is featured. And we found of experts that are in more than one episode, there are more white guys named Mike who are not scientists than there are women. Whoa. <laughs> Bananas. That's and crazy. And 60% of the Elasmarang Society is women. At a certain point, it's not an accident anymore that Discovery keeps picking white guys who have no expertise. Do you think part of the choosing people with no expertise is because the inherent misinformation and actual professionals not wanting to be, be part of a Discovery production? It's a mix because they, they, there can be professional benefits to being on a decent Shark Week show. There are definitely costs to being on a bad one. And there aren't a whole lot of good ones anymore. But there are benefits to being on an okay one. Your your department is happy with the national level media coverage. Funders find you. You get invited to things that you might not otherwise. And it elevates your own profile. So there are people who want to do it and they just keep getting burned. And one of the reasons why we did this paper is because people ask me all the time, if you Google me and Shark Week, several of the articles that come up, call me Shark Week's biggest critic. And I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly among the biggest critics. And people ask me all the time, like, I've been approached to appear in this Shark Week special. I don't know if the benefits are worth the risks. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but here are the risks. Here are what have happened to other people. Do you think that's worth the possibility of that? We, we, can't, we don't even need to get into how likely it is. It's, do you think it's worth the possibility of this? One particularly egregious example happened to a, a colleague of mine who was a hammerhead shark researcher, and she was told by Shark Week, we're going to do a special about hammerhead shark science, and we want you to go out and do your hammerhead shark science and talk on camera about it, and it'll be a, a vignette in the show. And then when the show aired, it wasn't about hammerhead science. It was about a, a mystical old ghost hammerhead named Old Hitler, who has lived for 75 years and terrorizes a coastal community. And they edited her responses so it looked like she was responding to questions she was never even asked. She almost lost her job because of the, this aired because it was just nonsense. You mentioned in the book that you feel like Shark Week is improving to a small extent. What are your thoughts on all that? 
They're not just making up complete lies anymore, which is nice. They had some specials that featured just completely fictional storylines, CGI video, photoshopped images, actors pretending to be scientists and government officials and families of shark bite victims. They're not doing that anymore. So that's good. But now it's just... Are they still airing those episodes as reruns? Yes. yes. And I can tell when they do because blog traffic on uh, our blog, Southern Fried Science, picks up whenever that happens. Like, oh, they must have just re-aired Megalodon, the monster shark lives. But now they have specials like last year, there was Jackass Does Shark Week, where it was just the jackass guys messing around with sharks in the wild and one of them got bitten. And like, that's not science. That's not conservation. I don't know what the hell it is. I mean, I always thought, like when I was a kid, Discovery Channel branded itself as a sort of educational channel. And I guess, I, I think that's how still how people view it, right? So the fact that this happens all the time, especially during Shark Week, is especially egregious. Even if it is getting better, it's still, yes, like, not great. Yeah. I just have a question regarding the overall perception of sharks in popular media. I remember 2015, early 2015, uh, you had the Super Bowl halftime show starring Katy Perry. I remember watching that halftime show and I remember watching that halftime show and you have, I believe, Left Shark. Left Shark became a big, huge meme. Left Shark, I remember, yeah. right, I think you and I were like roommates at the time. I think I remember like going to you and being like thinking that this is such a huge, like I just had an epiphany. That this is such a huge watershed moment because I was thinking five years earlier, those sharks would have been dolphins. Yeah. Have you seen significant shifts in the perception of sharks in popular culture over the last 10 years or so. Absolutely. And that's a fun thing that I like to document on social media. You go to, you follow hashtag sharks near me on Instagram. So for example, I, the new stranger Things season, there's a shark poster on one of the kids walls. And I take a picture of that and put it on there. I was just watching empire for the first time. Now it's all on Hulu. And there was a, 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 painting of a shark behind Tay Diggs's character. So sharks are big now. And it's also my conference attire. Like right now I'm dressed like a shark because I'm, I'm dressed like an idiot, but I can wear brands now that have sharks on them. I have a Tommy Hilfiger tie that sharks. I have a Banana Republic shirt that sharks. Sharks are big. I just have a newborn nephew. He's two weeks old or three weeks old now. And there is so much shark crap for babies now. It's great. And I bought all of it. For people who can't see, which is everyone but us, David is actually, when he says he's dressed like a shark, he doesn't mean he's wearing like shark clothes. He's wearing an actual shark costume and he's looking out at us through the mouth. Picture left shark with a, a shark scientist popping out of its mouth and it's a pretty good visual representation. I used to have an official left shark costume and it just... I just sweat through it and it got destroyed. I wore it to conferences. I wore it to a conference in New Orleans. I wore it to a conference in Brazil. It was like friggin' hot. And that's, it's three quarter inch thick foam rubber. A bunch of people got their pictures taken with me, which was fun. But uh, yeah, this new one is not, uh, it breathes a lot better. <laughs> that's great. You should write an article comparing and reviewing different shark costumes. <laughs> or save the left shark campaign since we can tell that they're so susceptible to temperature change unlike real sharks. Leroy, that comment, I remember you saying that, and it actually, in a way, over the years, I've thought about it lots of times, actually, the comment about how five years before that halftime show, they would have been dolphins, but now sharks are hitting a certain kind of cultural wave, and they're in the background, and they're used everywhere. That actually, a little bit, has kind of shaped how I think about everything, like wild green memes, even. A little bit of the way that I think about trying to do education via wild green memes like for example an individual meme even if it reaches a lot of people is unlikely to change anything but the idea isn't to directly change people's minds it's to have the background level of time spent thinking about animals go up even marginally and to have different animals in the background and different animals that are just incorporated into people's day-to-day -day life as a strategy but I, I kind of got that a little bit from that comment you said yeah sharks are everywhere Spiders and wasps seem like the final frontier. Like people like bees now. People didn't always like bees. So I guess that's a, that's a start. Yeah. There, there might be some misinformation about, about which bees are, are in danger or not. But can the, the guy who did the uh, the PR for honeybees get uh, get some involved in that? And like, I think everyone loves jumping spiders now. That's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, those are cool. But the other spiders, not so much. So yeah, there's definitely a, a shift in people really like snakes in ways that uh, they didn't. So it could be also be a blend of like finding your crowd and just be like wow lots of people like snakes and i i didn't 
know it. And now I, I've through uh, through social media or whatever, we found each other. I study snakes. And I will say once folks start getting convinced that uh, the animal that they previously found scary is cute, I think that's where like you start hitting that crest. Yeah. Like once they realize that sharks can be cute, that snakes can be cute, that jumping spiders are cute, I guess. Once they realize that like cute or wow, a wow can get. Yeah. And you can, that might be easier with spiders. So some of the pic, the close up pictures are quite cute. I think I find it's unlikely that someone's going to think a great white shark is cute, but they can think that they're powerful and important and cool and not scary. That's more what I go for. But if you can get cute, you're golden. Yeah, I think some animals like a great white shark. I don't know how they look when they're babies, but they're definitionally not cute. But as much as I love them, you know, they're they're just good in all those other ways you mentioned. Look up a salmon shark, though. It's like a like yeah, they look like a derpy great white puppy. It's a it's a living Funko Pop is the way I described it. But like they're absolutely hilarious. It's like if somebody was tasked with making a a great white shark into a, a cute animal with more mainstream acceptance, they would have just handed you a Funko. A, uh, I said Funko because they look like they've got the big eyes of a Funko figure. But uh, yeah, they would just hand you a prototype and be like, here. And it's a salmon shark. It's the, the cutest great white adjacent thing you can imagine. And the gummy sharks that are behind Curtis there, the he has an image of the, the candy gummy sharks. But there actually is a species called a gummy shark and they are fished in Australia and they are noted as having unusually sweet flesh. So I feel like someone somewhere is making a joke or it's a great coincidence. In your book, you mentioned that you're talking about the idea of the best shark. And you were talking about your book, you said best shark is, or at least your favorite shark is the sandbar shark. No, definitely the best shark. There's an image of one behind Rhett right now, which I appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Rhett, Rhett's really good at uh, schmoozing the guests. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but, but can you explain why the sandbar shark is the best shark? Sure. And can you also maybe like one or two different other species of shark that folks may not know about that are like really interesting or cool in their own way? So I love sandbar sharks. They're my favorite shark species. Follow hashtag best shark on Twitter and Instagram for years of me talking about them. They're my corporate logo. I'm holding up an image of my business card with sandbar shark drawings on it. Part of the reason that I love them is they were my master study animal. So they weren't the first shark I ever saw, but they were the first shark I ever saw a lot of, uh, which was cool. They also, but for millions of kids around the world, they are the first shark they ever see in their life because they're really common aquarium animals. You just picture a shark in your head and just a basic shark, and it looks a lot like a sandbar shark. They're sort of the classic model. They don't have a crazy head like hammerheads or a crazy tail like threshers or stripes like a tiger shark. It's sort of a base model shark. And... They're important ambassador animals because they're in aquariums all the time. They are important to our understanding of the ocean because they are found all over the world in shallow coastal water, which means they're commonly studied by marine labs all over the world. And they're the focus of some interesting management measures, experimental conservation and management plans here in the United States. Uh, And they also just don't get a lot of respect. If you follow hashtag best shark, you will also see uh, years of my professional colleagues teasing me for picking what they perceive of as a boring animal as the best shark. There's also a competing hashtag they made for sandbar sharks, hashtag yawn shark, uh, because it makes them fall asleep. Wow, brutal. So I love my sandbar sharks. Uh, I got to tell you, I am wired in such a way that having like people that I own books by when I was a kid make fun of me on Twitter. I love it because they're like, Oh my God, that guy knows who I am. I'm like, but he's saying that you're dumb. Like, but he knows who I am, you guys. But but you have heard of me. Yes, exactly. You're certainly the worst shark I've ever heard of. But you have heard of me. <laughs> uh, but there's tons of different species. There's over 530 species of sharks. A new species of shark skate ray or chimera is discovered about every two weeks somewhere in the world. Wow. Like living, living, wow. living. Yeah. Some of them glow in the dark. Some of them are bubblegum pink. Some of them are striped. Some of them are spotted. They come in about every shape and size you can imagine. They're not all the super aerodynamic ones. Which one's bubblegum pink? Goblin sharks can be bubblegum pink. That's wild. They're weird enough already. They're super weird. I write an Ask a Marine Biologist column for Scuba Diving Magazine where people can write in and say, like, I saw this weird thing scuba diving. What was it? Or just general questions about the ocean. And someone asked me, what's the deal with the goblin sharks snout? And I talked to a very serious professional ichthyologist about this. And he just started giggling in the middle of this interview. And he just said, I'm just remembering the first time I touched one. And it was way floppier than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. So if you look at it, it looks like a rhino horn. 
but it's it's not rigid at all, apparently. And he, he picked up the goblin shark and it just went, oh, my God. That's crazy. Before we wrap up, is there anything in particular that you wanted to share today about sharks or about anything at all? Yeah, just that sharks are not a threat to you. We are better off with healthy shark populations than we are without them. Many species are in trouble. We can and we should work to protect them. There's a lot of things that you can do. There's a lot of things that you want to do that are not going to actually help. And I cover all of this in the book. And also, uh, I am active on social media at Why Sharks Matter. I'm an active member of the Wild Green Memes Group. Uh, but you can follow me me directly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Why Sharks Matter. I'm always happy to answer any questions anyone has. The book is called Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. Dr. David Schiffman, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Rhett. I'm Curtis. I'm Roy. And I'm David. This episode was edited by Mohamed Aftal from Sri Lanka and me. Rhett Barker from Florida. Our music is by Brian Barker, also from Florida. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash wildgreenmemes. That's memes with an M. Until next time, thanks for listening.